Hello and welcome to Calmversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's Calmversant is Jeremy Pollock, who is a conflict resolution, peace building mediator type. He works with corporations to thread the needle when their employees are in conflict, and he has a bunch of different ways of getting people to get along and to recognize one another. He reached out to me, and I'm like, okay, well, I don't know anything about that. Come on board. And actually, Actually, his knowledge of human behavior is quite deep and fascinating, and it sheds a lot of light for me on how specifically people in America are interacting with each other across various different divisions, and how do we overcome those divisions, and how do we engage in fruitful, useful dialogue. I know that this is going to be very useful for a large portion of my audience base. So, without further ado, here is Jeremy Pollock. I'm just going to cut in when we get interesting, and then cut out when we're done and uh, just act sure. like a conversation. I don't know anything about mediation or coaching or peace building. So we're just going to come into it like, what the heck do you do? Yeah. And how did you yeah. start doing it? Like, the, yeah. that's like the first place. And is this the yeah. outgrowth of like a psychology major? Like, I'm just wondering, like, wh what did you study in college and how did you morph in, into what you're doing now? Yeah, I, uh, I, I, well, I started a coaching practice years ago. I was I came from a martial arts background, um, so uh, coming from coming from very sort of <clears throat> a long tradition of martial arts, starting when I was like ten years old, and uh, eventually owned a couple of academies and had a bunch of students, and uh, and then I started coaching. I started learning how to coach through having a coach, and I just like started doing personal development coaching, and that got me really interested. So I went back to graduate school. I got a master's degree in evolutionary anthropology, where I, where I studied the evolution of cooperation and conflict, which was really interesting to me. Um, and, uh, so, you know, be, became a fan of all the sort of the evolutionary thinkers and, and, uh, and then went back to school and got a grad, a master's degree in uh, conflict resolution and peace building. And now I'm, I'm in the sort of, you know, last year, hopefully of my dissertation in psychology. Oh, so what's your dissertation yeah. on? Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's basically a link between social identity, um, self-efficacy uh, beliefs and and um, and performance and competition. So how social identity uh, increases efficacy, both at the individual and the group level, and uh, and then how that relates to performance and competitions in group okay. competition. So yeah. I think, it, would it be wrong for me to guess that uh, peace building is a way of leveraging conflict towards a productive end? Peace or building, well, peace, maybe rather than conflict, perhaps. Yeah, well, P, P, I mean, my field is conflict resolution, so peace building is sort of the affirmative or the uh, sort of positive way of thinking about it. But yeah. peace building essentially is like um, it's it encompasses a whole range uh, or whole field of different methodologies that are positioned to intervene in conflicts. So whether it's like an interpersonal conflict or an intergroup conflict, usually peace building is thought of as an intergroup or a large conflict transformation process that takes a long time. But um, the way we use it, we do it in organizations for my company, but I've been doing it for a while now between individuals, between uh, people at work that work together, between groups that work together and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So is there so, like yeah, a so, essence of conflict or like a, like five, five types of conflict or there? Well, there are, I mean, there's lots of different theories of conflict. I, I tend to frame conflict through a human needs uh, framework, which is the, you know, so conflict is 
um, the way that I look at it is it is a, a, per- a real or perceived threat to one's basic psychological or physical needs. Um, and so when parties uh, perceive, what, even if they're you know, sort of unconscious perceptions of a, a threat or an impediment to one's own needs, that essentially leads to conflict. It's sort of the conflict is the emergence mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. Does conflict resolution scale from the, like, I guess, two people to uh, Democrats and Republicans? <laughs> like, like the, do the yeah, same yeah. kind of dynamics well, well, exist across that? Yeah, side? yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's kind of the, the area that I study is talk, you know, talking about social con, you know, uh, this it extrapolates out for sure to to social conflict in general because what I my whole my field of study is conflict psychology. So what yeah. what what are what are the psychologies involved? What are the sort of cognitive mechanisms involved in um, the emergence of conflict, both at the group and the individual level, mm-hmm. and how social identity plays into that and, and and that sort of thing? And then what kind of interventions could possibly work uh, to help to help groups? get out of conflict and into some sort of more peaceful, cooperative state with each other. Mm-hmm. And by yeah. social identity, what do you mean? There's probably a lot in there. Right? Yeah. So, so like, basically any uh, social identity is essentially the integration of, of a group identity into one's personal self-concept. So um, any kind of group identity, I mean, we all have multiple group identities, right? So like mm-hmm. you know, race, ethnicity, gender, uh, nationality, Etc. You know, so mm-hmm. uh, so essentially, like how how does how social identity study of social identity is how how do those how does the mind conceptualize those groups and integrate it into the self concept and in what kinds of contexts and conditions uh, does 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 the group identity become more salient than the personal identity how those okay. two things fuse together in certain ways and that sort of thing yeah do yeah. what what are your thoughts on the idea that Let's just say that America cannot be unified without a common enemy. Is, uh, what do you think about that? Like that, that the only way to unify uh, many tribes is to vilify or be against another tribe over there, you know, like the commies or I, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I would say that I'd be careful about uh, proposing any, like there's only one way to achieve something, you know, so, mm-hmm. but I would say certainly that is one way to achieve it. Yeah. Um, but I, but I, there's other ways to achieve it that are probably more difficult and, and would take okay. more effort on everyone's part. <laughs> like know? the space program or something. Even that was a competition with the yeah. Soviets in a way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so, mm-hmm. so common enemies, certainly, um, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole literature about intergroup contact theory and what it takes to help different groups get along better when they're in conflict. And what does it mean to have contact with each other and what kinds of contact is, is, is positive. It promotes cooperation and that sort of thing. Hmm. Um, so there, so there's, there's lots of ways to do it. I mean, I have different ideas and theories just based on what I know about how people should be going about getting along better. Um, Such but, as what? Yeah, so like, we could definitely just, be polite. Well, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Be kind. Be polite. Me. I mean, it's like start on the start on the on the 
on the local level, as local as you can go. And the most local you can go is with an individual. Start there, like get to know people as individuals. And then if you want to sort of expand out to that, like start to get to know local groups, like get involved with local communities. It's, 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 it's bizarre. It's too hard for the mind to grasp these large groups where it's like, I'm on this sort of group of 60 million people against that other group of 60 million. It's, it's, it's just the mind does weird things in that space and it doesn't make any sense. Oh, um, that, that is an interesting way of going about it because I keep on coming back ever since I started getting into Tocqueville, you know, post-election and I guess mm-hmm. post uh, whatever happened on January 6th. I'm like, okay, we have to go back to basics because this stuff is getting out of hand. And, like, yeah. and I keep on going back. Well, where did America begin? It began as local communities uh, beginning their government uh, and then and scaling up. And if we have to scale down. But you're really right about the human brain's not designed to conceptualize of course not. millions of people. Yeah, well, where where did where did the human the human being start at the local level, right? We we started in small groups, and that's kind of what our brains are designed to conceptualize. Uh, we can we can cooperate pretty easily in small groups. Once we get out to large groups, we need we need all kinds of cultural mechanisms to cooperate, and then a lot of those mechanisms break down, and we stop cooperating, and then factions form, and all that sort of thing. You know. Well, ha- could you like run us through some of those tools uh, within a company of like, uh, what's the maximum amount of, of uh, what's, at what point does a company need to go to these like more and more abstract tools, like with the number of different individuals in it, like a, a company of a thousand yeah. people or 130 or something like that. If you look at the evolutionary uh, literature, like, you know, I think a lot of evolutionary anthropologists would agree that, once you get beyond a group of, you know, 50 people, let's say, a, a, a small tribe, basically, you need all kinds of cultural mechanisms uh, to start um, to start making cooperation possible. In other words, to, to, to sort of, you know, uh, hold accountable free riders or cheaters in the group and, uh, and to know who's part of the group and who isn't. So you need cultural mechanisms like dialect, um, different languages. Uh, belief systems, etc., to know, okay, I can trust those people. Um, I don't know those people, you know, so like we, we need that. Otherwise, if we, if we can remember 50 people, right, but if you get beyond 50, maybe 100, 150 people up to those levels, you're going to start, you don't know everybody anymore. So now you need all kinds of mechanisms to tell your brain, who do I, who can I trust and who do, who, who can I not trust, basically. Oh, okay. And those mechanisms themselves are, um, not as strong as the earlier mechanisms. Uh, I guess just direct contact is the strongest way of knowing, uh, being familiar with somebody. Then, then there's like language dialect. They're not as strong, sure. so there's there's more wiggle room for distrust to enter into that or cheating. Uh, to, right, to enter right. Into that, yeah, yeah. Well, here, okay. So, I'll, let me uh, maybe maybe we start from the beginning. I, this this might be an interesting conversation. You tell me. Um, so, I, the way that I think about the mind, so the mind is set up essentially. Um, a, a, an organ is any organism that has a brain. The brain is is one of the main organs that are set up uh, uh, that are evolved to help the organism survive. And the brain is like you know a, a central sort of hub that helps the organism survive and reproduce in all kinds of different ways. And um, 
in the human in the human mind at least uh, and probably in, in lots of social animals minds the mind is set up to you sort of create a map of the environment both the physical and the social environment and that map tells the the organism do you approach this object or do you avoid this object the world is full of objects other other organisms a chair a hammer etc all kinds of objects what do I know about the object and do I approach or avoid? This is approach avoidance, just very basic binary sort of thinking. Mm -hmm. If we take that then and uh, extrapolate it into like a, 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 a three bucket system, three subcategories of approach avoidance, um, I, I, I look at it as familiar, positive, familiar, negative, and unfamiliar. Everything in our world gets bucketed into this is something I know and I have a positive experience with it. This is something I know and I have a negative experience or connotation with it. And this is something I don't know about. And typically we will approach things that are positive familiar and typically we'll avoid things that are negative familiar or defend against them. And then typically the unfamiliar stuff, depending on our personality, we, we either kind of approach it cautiously and try to figure out what that is. Do we, is it a positive thing or a negative or we just kind of avoid it altogether? just to be something on the safe side. So, so we have these buckets of, of, you know, approach avoidance, positive, unfamiliar, and that kind of thing. Um, the good thing is th what we're seeing now is like, there's a lot of talk about implicit associations, right? I implicit yeah. biases, implicit associations. And I haven't seen any research and I think it even says so on sort of like the implicit associations website, you know, that there's no, there's no association right now between people's implicit associations and behavior. So, so like if I have a negative association with this thing, like unconsciously, it doesn't mean that I'm going to behave in a certain way necessarily. There's no, there's no relationship. There is a lot of research though that shows that you can quickly kind of override implicit associations with positive experiences. And that I think is reflected in this intergroup contact theory. So if I have a negative association with this one group, right, mm -hmm. for instance, and I, and I then go and I just on an individual level meet someone who I have identified as part of that group, and I have a good experience with that person, that good experience, I start to, I start to have a positive connotation with that individual, um, uh, regardless of the, of the way that I conceive of his group or her group. So I can quickly override it with an individual. And that's why I think it's so important to get to know individuals, have positive experience with people, and not just look at them as representations of sort of this abstract group that mm -hmm. believes this thing or that's part of this thing or something like that. Hmm. That really strikes to the core of um, kind of a dominant method of dealing with... Uh I guess, implicit bias. I see a lot of major corporations um, trying to do this uh, racial justice work uh, or overcoming bias work. And what they're doing is separating people into their groups and then shaming one group and lifting the other group up. So the group that's being shamed, we, we don't have to say what group that is, is starting to form a negative association to to the company and then to this other group that's seeing being yeah. seen to be artificially lifted. So what you're, what you're saying is going explicitly against rather uh, the positive way would be to bring them all together and, and force them to have a good time or in, uh, you know, kind of instigate a good time with all these. Yeah. Groups. 
or, or, or not focus on our different group identities, but rather focus on common group identities, focus on common shared goals. Hey, we're all part of the same team here. Hey, we're all part of the same organization. You know, Harvard, Harvard Business Review did this interesting review of the literature on implicit bias training or implicit association training. And it was very obvious that people that are forced to do implicit bias training um, it, it actually had a negative effect. It was it, it created more division, uh, more anxiety about the other group and all that stuff. When people volunteer to go into that to that sort of training, uh, it could have a positive effect. But those are people that are sort of pre-selecting themselves to say, yeah. I already believe this kind of thing. I just want more information about it. People mm -hmm. that don't believe it, that don't want to participate in it, you know, they it, it has a negative effect. And pe you know, you can see why because like no one wants to feel like, hey, I should be ashamed of who I am based on things that I didn't control, i.e. the way that I was born, right? I, I should, like, how, how am I supposed to be ashamed about that? Now, you know, there's, there's, a, there's an argument on the other side that I've, that, um, you know, sort of like that, well, we're not trying to shame you. We're not trying to say you should be to blame. We're just trying to highlight, you know, uh, Historical forces. What's, what's going on? Yeah, what's yeah. like, what's going on psychologically or culturally or something like that. But, and there's a lot, but there's a lot of people that say, well, you know, I don't believe that. So um, it, the, the question to, to me right now, it's like, we're looking at sort of what's happening in society. And I'm not clear about, about the specific goals that people have in terms of like, here's the social changes we want. Okay, what, what are the actual real changes that you want and how do you know when you get them what how do we how do we measure whether or not those changes are being affected and what methods are you using to affect those changes and i think the methods right now have a problem there's a there's a problem in the methods like it's like it's 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 you know if someone says if if, if we say well we want um equal opportunity for people or we want some sort of equitable outcomes which is you know a whole debate in itself about yeah. equity. or let's just say the value of fairness is very high the value of fairness yeah uh, yeah what they want yeah so if we if we want the value of fairness okay so what does fair look like and how are we going to achieve fairness um that's an that's an interesting discussion and it's worth discussing but if we can't have that discussion or if we can't identify mm. actually what it looks like how do we measure it and how do we get there Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and how, how effective is that method of getting there? If we don't do all those things, we're kind of shooting in the wind. And I think right now that's one of the major problems is the methods by which we're trying to get to fairness, mm -hmm. um, is, is a problem. I'll, I'll give, I'll give you an example. So, so using words like using certain languages where people, where a whole bunch of people have an association with the language. So if you say, um, if you, if you use the word privilege, a lot of people will associate really negative sort of self-deprecating sort of shameful associations with the word privilege. So my question to people that use the word privilege is if you if you want fairness, if that's the if that's the goal, every everybody has equal opportunities, et cetera. If that's the goal, why continue to use a word that you know is going to provoke defensiveness? Hmm. Why do that? Why, why not just change the language and talk about the same concepts in a different way where it's not so triggering? Like yeah. if I was in a, if I was in a conflict resolution situation I, and I knew someone was triggered by a certain word, I would do my best not to use that word because all that's going to do is make them defensive and I won't get anywhere. I won't have an effective communication with the person. Yeah. So like, so with methods like this, like, why are we using that kind of language if it, unless the, the point is to provoke in some way, unless that's the point. 
And if that's the point, well, that, that method seems to be pretty effective in provoking people. I was going to yeah. bring that up, uh, that if, if you didn't want to provoke people, then you wouldn't go around calling them racist. And then the, the other interpretation of that is that, well, if they go around calling everybody racist, we're fighting amongst each other and somebody else's yeah. uh, will is being served by uh, yeah. getting us to not get along. So yeah. the cool thing about what, you're, what you've studied and what you know is that you can take... You can take any given social issue and and look at it on how do human beings achieve something together. Yeah. And and critique yeah. it or well not not even critique it. It's not just a critical theory that that you have uh knowledge in. It it's a you know the, the opposite of a critical theory. A unification theory uh or different yeah. things that get people It's a, that's it. a great way of 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 conceptualizing it. A, a unification um uh you know the whole the whole goal the whole mission is is unification in some way yeah. how do we how do we get people to unify and and i do think that it has to be on an individual level it's really tough to do it on a on this large scale level okay um so how yeah. how do we how do we work from the individual up that's that's a, uh, so here so here i'll give you the, i'll give you an example if if this is something that i talk a lot about and and it might sound you know frou but i but i say like can you know in individual interactions, especially if we're in conflict with someone, but even if we just want to maintain peace, if we don't want to get into conflict, can we put the concept of, of care for each other as a priority? And it doesn't okay. mean that we let our positions go or let our policies go or anything like that. What it, what it just means is in this interaction with this individual, can I just take the first five minutes of my interaction and just be caring? Okay. And, and everybody knows how to be caring if they just drop all their other, you know, agendas is just to be caring. Yeah. So can I care for this individual? And that means, can I listen to them? Can I get to know them a little bit? Can I understand who they are? Usually we will find a whole lot of things we can relate to people on if we just come at them without an agenda other than just, I just want to get to know this person. I just want to care for them a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I would, I would, I would start there that, um, the big, the big problems that I see right now, which, which are, which are concerning are that, my my whole field is based in communication. It's based in in order to unify and get back together and achieve something together. Um, we have to communicate. Usually that's through dialogue, but maybe that's through some other ways of communicating. But when we have a culture that's now promoting like we're not willing to dialogue, yeah. either you get on board or that's it. You know, yeah. we don't want to hear your side at all. That's sort of antithetical to the stuff that I do. And so that's what's concerning to me is like, how do we get back to a place where we're all willing to hear each other again? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I'm, I keep on talking about this recently. There's this new app. It's called Clubhouse. And it's basically all these chat rooms. And what I'm seeing in uh, this web social media app is a lot of people migrating from Facebook and Twitter onto this, uh, this app where they're now dialoguing through audio. And mm. it's very oh, obvious that the methods of communication on Twitter don't necessarily translate to this dialogical um, area. Because yeah. on Twitter, you can silo yourself out, you can have a lot of echo chambers, you can you can sure. really put down the statement and, and put your flag down and like defend it, and then and then go through this whole argumentation. But in a live forum, which is real time, when that happens, the conversation reaches a breaking point. And then 
it's really obvious that there's certain things that end the conversation, that end communication, that stop mm-hmm. it from going anywhere. It's that you either agree or you go away. And then, and then that whole thing disbands and you watch it. You can actually experience that uh, in, a, in a very tactile way. Like, oh, that, that person just wanted to completely you know, own everybody else. And it doesn't work yeah. there because now we're all... Now we're all fractured. So it's just, it's really fascinating to watch different tactics that people, myself included, have gotten used to in this more combative area of Twitter, uh, where we don't necessarily need to care for that person. Uh, We can just, you know, care about our own tribe or, you know, go for points in this uh, abstracted way with likes and stuff. And it doesn't work in this other medium. So I think that bringing out, um, and then it brings up, the question of what are good communication skills? Like, why are we talking? If we want to talk towards a goal, then we have to actually focus first and foremost on, well, how do we even communicate with one another before yeah. we even before we even get anywhere? Yeah. Well, you know, one, one thing um, I, I totally agree, and, and there's a whole different. I haven't studied the psychology of writing versus dialogue. Uh, but that I'm sure that's an interesting uh, literature, and I and I yeah. I would imagine that when people are when people's personalities can can change and alter in certain ways, almost like they're a shadow self can come out through writing because they get to hide in some way. But when you when you actually have a dialogue face to face or even on the phone or something like that, there's more accountability um, mm-hmm. in that dialogue, and and it's and it's it's. I would think that it's more reflective of your own self-image. So if I start acting like a total jerk in a dialogue and I, and I don't want to think of myself as a jerk, that cognitive dissonance will sort of, I think, help correct it into like, I'm not going to be such a jerk. But on, online, it's like there's no cognitive dissonance. It's like I can be a complete jerk online when I'm writing or something like that. Mm. But, not, but that doesn't somehow integrate into the way I think about myself. So there's got to be some, I don't know, there's got to be some interesting psychology with that. So I, I totally agree with that. But um, yeah, if we're dialoguing with each other, one thing that I um, sort of coach people on when we're starting to dialogue with someone who we're in conflict with, and especially if that conflict involves identity-based conflict, where this person is in some group that ha- believes this thing, and I feel threatened by that thing, mm-hmm. and vice versa, they feel threatened by my beliefs in some way and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it's, it's starting to learn to have a different relationship with discomfort. So right now, let's talk about that approach avoidance uh, category again. Mm-hmm. Anything, that's, um, anything that's painful to me, anything that's uncomfortable to me, typically I'm going to avoid it. I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want to be in pain. That's typical of an organism, right? Of any human beings, especially. Um, so it's learning to start to have, because having conversations with people that have beliefs that feel like they're threatening to me is very uncomfortable, if not painful. It brings up fear, disgust, anger, all these very sort of difficult, painful emotions, uncomfortable emotions. And I have to start to learn to have a different relationship with pain in some way. This mm-hmm. is kind of like where I, this is something I used to talk about a lot in martial arts. Is like yeah, okay. when you're a martial artist over time, you start to learn that pain necessarily is not something to always avoid that you can, uh, you can endure a certain amount of pain. And if by enduring it, you can go into it a little bit, it actually helps you grow in some way and learn what you can handle and stuff. And so when we're in dialogue process, if the first thing I hear feels like a threat and I go, forget it, I don't want to talk to you, let's just cancel you 
or let's just get away and I don't want to ever have a dialogue with you. That's not going to be helpful. That's not going to help us grow together. But if we can change that relationship with pain and I can say, you know what, just because I'm in pain right now, just because I'm angry, just because I'm uncomfortable, just because it feels disgusting to me to hear this, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean I should necessarily stop and avoid it and go away. Maybe I can sit with this pain a little bit. Just sit with it. Mm-hmm. Let myself feel anxious if I need to, feel disgust. Yeah. And then I can continue the dialogue. Yeah. And that takes a lot. It's not easy. But, but that's something that's important. If we're going to have dialogues with people that don't believe what we believe, and if they believe things that are threatening to us, we need to start learning to have a different relationship with that uncomfortable uh, discomfort. I see that um, I agree with you, but also people that I disagree with are using this mindset of let's have uncomfortable conversation. You need to oh. sit with your discomfort. And they're using that as a tool to squash people's uh, critical faculty or to stop ah. dissent. So it yep. is being used to to get people in line and to and to put people in their place. It's like you only yeah. think that you only disagree with me because you're going to lose your privilege or you are trying right. to you know not see the truth and stuff like that. So so it's a form in, of gaslighting. It is a form of gaslighting, which is a term that's overused, but I think that you might have the ability to kind of really define uh, when to listen to the voice that says something's wrong and when to say, no, it's okay that I'm uncomfortable. I can master my pain. Right? Could you? Yeah. How do you tell the difference? It's a really great distinction that you just brought up. So when when we talk about dialogue, first of all, all parties have to be willing to be uncomfortable to hear the other side. It's not just one side. If it's yeah. just one side needs to be uncomfortable and the other side gets to say whatever they want, that's so not there has to be work. symmetry. Okay. It, it, there has to be, there has to be mutuality. I mean, that, I mean, in terms of what I do, in terms of the work I do. Um, the other thing is when we go into a dialogue, the dialogue is not a debate. The dialogue is the purpose of the dialogue is not to convince or condemn. The purpose of the dialogue is purely to learn from each other. Okay. Let's learn from each other. And then from learning, what are, what are your fears? What are the things that you're afraid of if, like, from my side? What are the things that you want? How do you want to get those things? Both of us have that conversation. So everybody's clear on what are our goals, how do we want to get there, and what are we afraid of? And we're all, we're all aware of that. And now from there, we can start to talk about, okay, so what are some solutions we can talk about that consider both of our fears, that consider both of our goals, and both of our proposed methods. Mm-hmm. Like that's where we need to go to. But if it's only one side and it's just it's like, you know, this side is the more important side because of whatever reason, you know, yeah. whether it's because we feel, uh, you know, uh, marginalized or oppressed in some way. And we're the, so, so that our voices only matter because we feel oppressed. Um, that's a difficult proposition. Now, in some cases it might be true and it might be necessary. That's not the work that I do. Mm-hmm. That would be more like advocacy work where we need to give power to one side because they're disempowered and that kind of thing. I, I, I'm a neutral. And so that's the work, that's where the work that I come in is like, I'm only, I'm only useful if everyone is willing to consider both each other's perspectives. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I'm gonna, I'm thinking in rough draft now, but I'm just trying to carve out, uh, the kind of conversations that I want to be involved in where I Mm -hmm. learn things. So it starts with a sense of, one, the sovereignty of the in- individual is maintained, 
where everybody has the power over themselves and over their thoughts and over their moral agency. So judgment, in a sense, needs to be suspended. And it needs to be suspended insofar as we are traveling towards learning. So with with the desire to learn from each other, we need to not judge each other. So the sovereignty of the individual leads to the agency of them to decide to agree or to disagree so that the end goal isn't for us to have to agree in order to achieve a certain aim. So once the conversation's over, it's up to everybody to think those things over and decide if they want to pursue that goal or not. So there isn't this sense of one thing that I see, um, and I don't want to make this uh, talk too political, but one thing I see within critical social justice is that they overload the conversation with urgency. We have to Mm -hmm. act. We have to change. Therefore, we all, which is just kind of a cover for we all have to agree in order to do something. And so my agency is taken away because it's it's all overloaded with urgency. So that political yeah. or that particular uh, way of framing the conversation is something that, that I would just extract from the actual conversation. That could happen afterwards once we all agree. So that the main, t- uh, so that my sovereignty and my agency, my volition is maintained throughout every step of the way. So yeah. I was just banging off of I, what you're giving me yeah yeah no i agree i mean if i were if i were going to hold the dialogue um we would set some ground rules and part of those ground rules would be what is our intention our intention here is to learn from each other not to convince or condemn that's our intention mm-hmm. um maybe we have an intention of creating some goals that we can both we can all agree on um sometimes that ha- that's true and sometimes it's just about learning from each other uh an- another intention would be we we will not we are coming to this in good faith which means we are not here to tell one another you're evil, ignorant, wrong, bad, et cetera. We're not here to shame each other. If that happens, we're, this dialogue will break down. So we yes. need to be, we need to maintain, maintain those ground rules. Um, and then, you know, you could, you could expand a little bit and you could say, you know, I'm, you know, I'm also open to challenging my own ideas. If I hear information that seems, uh, that's set, that seems pretty interesting or significant and, and then are sort of counter to what I currently believe. Yeah. I'm in, I'm, I'm open to challenging my own beliefs if I hear yeah. some information. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and, and, and let's, let's be able to have, you know, timeouts. Let's be able to, like, if something starts to get heated and we, I, let's be able to have, okay, let's time out and let's pause for a second. Let's get back to ground zero. Hmm. You know, so I think having ground rules like that and going in with that good faith intention is really important um, when we're having dialogues. Hmm. What are some of the things that you use um, when you're, um, I, and, Feel free to like anonymize this answer or make it abstract or as as uh, anecdotal as you want. But I, I just have a, I just want to know a story of like, you're just dealing with impossible people, and how do you not give up? Like, well, I mean, it's so so. Uh, me me giving up would look like me me quitting on them by saying I, I can't support you anymore um so that's rarely happened typically what would happen first before that would be yeah how do you be, avoid that or forestall that well yeah so so if i if i'm there so my job is to care for all parties and to hold a safe space where all parties feel cared for and feel like yeah. it's safe and and they know that if things started getting heated or uh things aren't working out i will step in and hold a strong sort of presence and say we need to stop now or we need to take a time uh, or, or we just need to like, you know, come back at a later date. So they, so they need to know that. So my job is to care for all people. And if I recognize at some point, like we aren't getting anywhere, uh, it doesn't seem like we're going to get along, you know, 
I work in organizations, so it's a little easier for me to say at some point, why do you want to be in this organization anymore? Or why do you yeah. want to work with this person anymore? And, and, and go through that line of thinking. And sometimes it's like, okay, well, I, they actually want to separate. And my job then becomes, how do I help you peacefully separate? Yeah, yeah, you know? okay, yeah, yeah. So that's so now in a, in a, but, but those are individuals who are only interdependent out of choice by staying in the same organization. If you, if you look at sort of society, we are so interdependent and we don't have any choice. As, and I mean, we could leave the country, but you know, we don't, if we want to be in the country, we, we have to kind of uh, get along with each other on some level. So it's, it's harder to say, well, I'm just like, not going to talk to this group anymore or not going to yeah. you know, sort of interact with them anymore. Uh, yeah. So that's, so that stuff. So that, so that's just like resilience. Like, let's just keep at it. You know, it does, didn't work today. Okay. Let's yeah. come back in a week. Let's try again. You know, okay. Yeah. So, so a sense of patience and uh, it just, a lot of this boils down to just kind of being an adult, but we're at a point in, in our <laughs> society where it's, right? where it's, yeah, where it's really important to remind ourselves of really basic things. Yeah. I, there's this, um, again, within certain formats, it's okay to go nuclear or it, you know, it kind of works to like do the mic drop, but in other formats, like you can't actually drop the mic you actually lose when you do the mic drop. So it phases sure. out these, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to talk to you or I'm really worried about talking to you because it's either, it's either my way or fascism, right? Going completely to this place where it just ends the conversation because there's no way for anybody to get along. It doesn't sure. work out in, in more uh, protracted, embodied uh, kind of conversations or embodied uh, dialogue situations. So it's really interesting um, to see. Uh, maybe I could ask you about this. Uh, translating your business and your work from people sitting in a room to people on webcams, has there been a difference in the quality of the communication, uh, negative, positive, or are you able to abstract and everybody's able to just, uh, work the same in those two domains? Well, yeah, my, I mean, my, 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 uh, I, I can only have that anecdotal evidence since I, you know, only yeah. can talk about a few, um, well, any but, thoughts uh, you have on, on that or maintaining yeah. or watching the patterns of behavior. Well, so one thing that I've found is there's there's advantages and disadvantages to going remote, to going online. So like people in organizations, so when I get called in, it's because people are in, are typically in conflict or they or they foresee conflict happening in you know yeah. in the near future. Um, so a lot of times when we're in we're in an, in an office setting and there's people that are in conflict that are working with each other, they're sort of like they almost feel trapped, i.e., forced to be in this setting with this person they don't want to be around or who's triggering them or feeling like they're a threat or an impediment to them in some way. And when they, when I, what I saw was when they started going uh, remote, they, the stress levels kind of went down because they're not around this person all day anymore. They're, they only have to interact with them like in little, little bits throughout the day. And like, they feel protected. They're in their place of comfort, their home, which is a more powerful place for them. It's you know, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So actually stress levels I found went down in a lot of people and from a lower stress position, it's much easier to have an effective communication. It's much easier to start rethinking the relationship with people to reperceive the way that you think about them and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. Not not that people just naturally do that, but but it's it's easier to do that. Uh, the one thing that I will say about about this kind of communication though is we lose a little bit of the the warmth, the energy. We also yeah. see like a talking face, so we don't see body posture, and sometimes yeah. body posture can tell us a lot. Um, sometimes body posture can 
can be feel very closed off. So like you're in a you're at a meeting with someone in a room and they're just like this or whatever. Person's not interested in me or they're either being, you know, uh, a, you know, a jerk or something like that. But if they're just online, I don't know what's going on. So uh, other than their face, so it might actually be advantageous. So, yeah, yeah there's kind of benefits and, and, and dis- disadvantages to it. I'm, there's something that you brought up about like the cumulative or the accumulated knowing of somebody. And it seems like a part of what you're able to do or you have the skills to do is kind of deconstruct uh, what people think about each other in order mm-hmm. to get to a, a lower level. Is that, is that correct? And what are some of the ways in which you do that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the mind, the mind is set up with all kinds of interesting biases. Confirmation bias is a big one that plays into conflict, a hostile attribution bias or what's called hostile attribution error. Um, that's something that's uh, found in the research um, where what's basically, uh, so hostile attribution error is this um, or bias is this, it's a filter that's placed. Um, it's it's kind of related to anchoring bias. In other words, when I have some information about someone who gets placed into the negative category for me, like I have a negative interaction, like they they feel threatening to me in some way, there there uh, emerges or activates like a filter, which is their bias, and yes. through that filter now it's a hostility filter, and everything that this person does or says now is kind of filtered through this hostile attribution bias and now i now now whatever they ask me it's going to feel like a challenge like they're trying to catch me in something or that you know mm-hmm. they're trying they're trying to be a jerk to me or something like that and if you looked at it objectively from just a neutral perspective and I, this happens to me all the time when i'm say someone that i'm coaching says you should see what they wrote to me today and i go well, let me see and so they show me the email and i say and i look at them and say that seems very benign to me like they're just asking a question what how did you perceive that and there's like, well, she's obviously trying to catch me doing something wrong. She's trying, look at it, and she's going to CC these other people because she wants to show that I didn't know. And it's, it's just like, you're, there's all this bias going on, this, all this perception. And we have to start talking about this and making, your, making you more aware of the fact that you are perceiving consistently that this person's trying to be hostile towards you, that they have negative intent towards you. That may or may not be true. But, but we don't know because it's all in perception right now. So are you willing to find out? Are you willing to find out what they actually meant by that, what they actually intended? And then that requires some like, okay, let's, let's talk about this. What, what did you mean by that? And that, and that becomes a, a, like sort of a, a process of reconciliation almost of like, can you reinterpret for me what you meant by that communication, whether it was an email or what you said or what you did or, you know, can you reinterpret that behavior for me? And then can you also maybe like, and, and my job partly is to help people reassure each other, you know? So it's like, um, hmm. this person never includes me in the meetings. They never call me and they, they never include me in the meetings. So, you know, obviously they don't care about my input. They don't value me at all. And now I have this sort of bias against them. Like everything they do probably is sort of, sort of negative. And, you know, if we have a dialogue, I'm, what I might be able to get to is, can you tell us why you don't include her in those meetings? And the person could, could totally reinterpret it and say, I didn't even think about it. Like, I didn't know she wanted to be, if I knew she wanted to be involved in these meetings, I would have invited her. I just didn't know that I didn't want to put that on her plate. And then, and then to reassure, I would say, okay, so you didn't invite her, not because you didn't want her there, because you just didn't think she wanted to be there. And there was some miscommunication there. And can you tell her, do you value her? And, and the person, of course I value her. Yeah, that, that wasn't even, the, of course I value her. So I get that reinterpretation. I get that reassurance. And then that starts to break down 
the 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 filter, the bias a little yeah, bit. Yeah, the dominoes kind of. Yeah, and you and you have to tell the other person like, okay, now listen, you've heard it from her. She reinterpreted it. Uh, she 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 told you that she does know you're valuable and she let she wants you to be involved. Can you start giving her the benefit of the doubt now? Can you start trusting that what she's telling you is real and true? And that's another hurdle where it's just like, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe she's just lying to us. Maybe she maybe she's just telling us that just again. So that's another hurdle. And it's just like this process, this like sort of long process of changing your perception to be more in line with in sort of what's what's actually happening. There's some lost in translation element happening here where this person has an intention. It's being lost in translation. And this person has this completely other interpretation of what of what the person yeah. intended. Yeah. yeah, that's that's what I find a lot of happening. I don't usually find like malicious intent. Sometimes there is, and that's when I step out and go, okay, like you guys need to have a lawyer come come in if this person's like maliciously intending to harass you or something. Okay. You know? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there is a line, and you know where you, you've you've become yeah. deft at recognizing Listen, it. If, yeah. if there's actual real discriminatory behavior or harassment behavior or something like that, it's like you need an advocate, not me. I'm a neutral. Like you need to. You need to call a lawyer, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. When I come in is like, let me let me help make sure that what you're perceiving is real or not real. And if it's not real, mm-hmm. let's get some reality going here. Let's make sure that you both are clear on each other's intentions and communication. Yeah. That's what I, in, in my work, it's like a lot of conflict is unintentional conflict. It's this misinterpretation, miscommunication, something that this side said or this person said, yeah. for whatever reason was interpreted in this other way by this person yeah. and it meant all this stuff. And they did person didn't intend for that. It's absolutely. Um, I think there might be a hopeful message in what you're saying. If we go up to like the, I guess the taco sphere or the, uh, you know, the, the mass communication sphere, social media sphere, where yeah. it might be the case that most animosity in America between Americans is completely uh, that unintentional conflict. Yeah. It's like, I, I heard that this is fascism. So I don't have to think through all this data. I can just recognize that as exactly. fascism and go, boom. Okay. You're fascist. You're on the good side. And then the centrists, I'm just going to poop on you because you know, you don't care about the fact, well, whatever, you know? Um, yeah. and you know, I can think about, uh, reputation slander or if you get a bad reputation just one rumor can completely cause people to uh, thousands of people to filter you into this one box and not even touch you not even look at you anymore and and i've uh, like i personally there was this uh this academic paper that started to filter youtube channels and they put me in far right and I, I specifically asked, like, why am I in far right? And they said, well, yeah. data that we gathered from these other things put you in this category. I'm like, I don't even know what you mean by far right. Does that mean that I'm a Nazi or that I want a king? Like, I don't e- you don't even yeah, know yeah, what yeah. that category is. And it was weird because Sam Harris and Brett Weinstein, all these people were put into this category because of a, a categorical error. Wow, that, that's interesting. That happened yeah. way up the stream. And eventually there was enough pushback against this academic, uh, this academic group that they're like, okay, there was an error in our categorization. But they didn't even consider the amount of power that just putting me in that bucket uh, has. 
and disconnecting me from thousands of people and, and yeah. causing me to not even be able to communicate because now I'm on far right, whatever that means, which could be the worst thing in the world or something very, very silly. So it's just, it's really interesting when we take what you're, what, what you're talking about, about just interpersonal relationships, not giving the benefit of the doubt or not even just having the process, processing power to think through everybody's position and to you know, and to not just categorize these people because it takes time to actually care about people. It takes a heavy investment and you're not even certain that the investment that you're putting to care into that person is is going to be a waste or not, especially when we're all strangers. Right. So, yeah, well, I I think you're right. I mean, I think a lot of what's happening, I mean, and I do think it's potentially a hopeful message as long as we try to correct for it, um, that that there's a lot of unintentional conflict going on. And and I've experienced it personally when I start to talk to people who I don't understand their beliefs and they start to articulate them to me. Actually, I want to hear what they believe. And then I go, oh, that's not what I thought you meant by that. Like, that's not what I understood. And, you know, the, the... I, I think we're uh, the, the uphill battle. If there if there is one, it doesn't. It does seem like there is one. The uphill battle is really media at this point. Um, it's it's like you know social media and news media, because what one side, what most people on one side of a position or a political spectrum believe, is being uh, spun in certain ways to produce a narrative through media, and it gets to the other side, and they go oh. Well, that's that's a threat. I we can't deal with them. You know what I mean. So Seventy million people ways. are are my enemies. Like right, it's going and it's going. It's, yeah, it's going. It's going both ways. And um, the 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 problem is is like when we focus on things that we see in the media, which is all about fear and threat, because that's the way they get audience. Yeah. Um, we stop. We stop recognizing the millions, sorry, I was like the billions of really positive cooperative interactions that are happening every day between individuals in this country on all sides of the spectrum. They, we, we just discount the idea that I went out today and just went to the local coffee shop and met this guy. And, you know, I don't know what group he was in, but he was a different call, you know, a different race than me or a different ethnicity than me. He was a different religion, obviously, than me. We had a great conversation. He's a really interesting guy. I completely discounted that because I went and watched the news about how uh, divisive the, the, the divide is between me. And it's like there's millions and millions of really positive, cooperative conversations and interactions happening every day that the yeah. news doesn't care about. Right. They only yeah. care about the things that create fret, fear. Yeah. So, um, again, yeah. Fo- going back to like f- focusing on the individual, I think is important. Yeah. I, I'm thinking I was trying to formulate a question around how do we, it is a definitely an uphill battle because our attention has been funneled through fear and conflict because yeah. that, that that's really easy for, let's just say, algorithms and the people who run all these different websites and the media companies too, it's really easy for them to meet their bottom line and to maximize their engagement through that lower feeling, uh, like just playing with the lower brainstem. So the question is, well, how do we, how do we make this part of our brain sexy? It's something that, that we want to invest in. And I was thinking about maybe casting it as an opportunity, uh, like like maximizing kind of like a gambling addiction or something like there's an opportunity of a great re- reward if you enter into things with good faith 
yeah. maybe maybe some reconditioning needs to happen where we say, you know, there's a lot that I can get out of people if I give them the benefit of the doubt and not necessarily extract as a resource, like exploitatively, but collectively is there's there's a lot of good uh, oxytocin or whatever it's called and dopamine to be harvested. I'm, I'm really being very low, yeah. but I, I think that there's a lot of opportunity there. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of opportunity. Well, it's like if if I ask an if I ask someone if I ask you what what do you want in life, I mean, I mean, and I'm not talking about like surface level goals. I'm like, what do you what do you want? I mean, most people really they want to feel somewhat at peace in their life, right? They want to feel like they have a good life and they're like high level of life satisfaction. That's what they want. And if you if you were able to articulate, okay, listen. This, this way of you going, of watching media that's very fear-based and threat-based and that kind of stuff and focusing on division and focusing on all the stuff, that's, that's way less likely to get you to your goal of a state of feeling peaceful and feeling good about life than if you, went, if you shut off the TV and you went downstairs and you talked to someone that's a little bit different than you and you had a good interaction with them. And you just like cared for them for a second, listened to them, uh, asked them about their life found some interesting commonalities like if you do that regularly you're going to achieve the goal of having a good satisfying peaceful life way more easily than if you just sit there and watch the tv and go look how messed up we all are yeah you know and so like so so i don't i don't know what what the you're right there needs to be some mechanism to make it sexy to like <laughs> like what is the what is the right method for that but but i i found that personally like i've shut out all media like i've stopped watching news i've stopped watching i i deleted all my social media accounts except no, for like podcasts and stuff. no no podcasts i love because i can selectively listen to who and what that i that okay. i yeah. that i that i think is useful right so like yeah. okay but uh but yeah so like but but you know, I, I just don't feel like it was useful or effective for me to watch the news. And I, that's a debatable topic. I tell people that and they go, oh, well, you, then you're uninformed. And yeah. you don't have this, but yeah, but what are you informed about? You're informed about certain journalists' narrative mm -hmm. about events that's spun through their own thing. And people may or may not want to believe that, yeah. but I know it for sure because I've seen and I've witnessed it. I've seen, like, mm -hmm. basically, um, I, I used to be a huge fan of a particular network. And I was watching them all the time. And then I caught them red handed in a lie where they actually where they I saw for the first time. I, I, I hate to use the sort of uh, euphemism fake news, but I saw for the first time they actually extrapolated something out from what a politician was saying. This one little blip. And they had this 30 minute conversation about how horrible it was about what he meant by that, what he said by that and stuff like that. And I bought into it. And then I actually watched the clip and they completely took it out of context. And I thought, what are they talking about? How could they look at this clip and actually believe what they, and I thought that was it. And that was the end. I was like, I'm done. I can't be lied to anymore. Mm -hmm. So I, I just stopped. So it's like, it, you know, as long as people, when I, I feel like people need to start realizing what they're watching is being filtered through other people's biases too. Yeah. It's not just legitimate, like if they were there watching it and being able to interpret it themselves, right? You know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Me too. That's the uphill battle. Yeah. yeah. May I ask you why you do this? Like, what set you on this path? Like, what, what's in? It sounds like there's something really deep in you that that's manifesting yeah. in this. I don't know how deep you want to. It's a good be. question, and I'll, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, uh, I think, I think I'll, I'll start. So I, I, I had an experience when I was young, and I, I've only like talked about it publicly, like maybe once. 
Um, but when I was, I was studying martial arts for a long time in my, uh, in my early, early, you know, my youth and teenage years and stuff like that. I, and I really loved it. And I went to college, uh, at, in downtown Los Angeles at USC, um, for my undergrad. And, um, I, the, I think it was the first month that I was there. I was actually kidnapped by a gang member. Um, who, you know, uh, at one in the morning when I was sort of uh, going back to my car after, you know, coming from like a, a party somewhere, um, he came behind me with a knife and put the knife to me and made me drive him somewhere. And, it, and I had a in really, you know, amazing, uh, frightening, um, sort of life-changing experience where um, during that car ride and he was sort of telling me where to go, uh, I realized that he was, he, his intention was to kill me and to is some sort of gang initiation or something. And, uh, so, um, so I, I was in that car and I, and I, you know, I, it was, it was a really crazy experience because it was never before and never after had I ever gotten to the point where in my mind I was, I was, I was ready and willing to take a human life. Cause I thought some, I, I remember thinking to myself, mm. I will not die tonight. I will not die tonight. And I, my, my life flashed before me and my, you know, my mm. family and stuff. It was, it was pretty, it was pretty like sort of, you know, dramatic, but I didn't feel afraid. I felt very confident the whole time uh, that I was going to survive, even if it meant that I had to, um, to, to fight this, this person and, and kill him, which I really didn't want to do. And so I ended up, thank God, I ended up finding a way once we, he got, we got off the freeway. Um, he told me to drive like way into sort of, you know, into neighborhoods that I had no idea where I was and it was not a good neighborhood for me to be in. And uh, we got off the freeway and he said, go up, go up there, you know, and we were going up to this neighborhood that was like, it was a neighborhood. And, 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 I, and I just knew in my, in, my, in my gut that if I went up there, I would never come out. And I have to get, I have to do this now. I have to either get out or I have to fight this individual. And, uh, and, and, my, and I thought to myself, if I fight him and I have to kill him, I would, it would be traumatizing for the rest of my life. I would, I would want that image in my mind. I wouldn't want to do that. I, I would feel horrible about it, even though I was sort of forced to do it. So what else can I do? And I thank God I was able to uh, take off my seatbelt without him seeing. And while I was driving, going about 35 miles an hour, um, I slowed down as much as I could slow down without being suspicious. And I opened the door and I just jumped out. And I was able to roll and, um, you know, didn't get too hurt. I got, you know, scraped up and, you know, cut a lot, you know, from the, just the, 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 the asphalt, but, uh, but I was able to get up and run like really fast and I got away, thank God. And, um, and in the weeks that followed, uh, I, I became very sort of isolated and actually the years that followed became isolated, sort of depressed. Mm -hmm. I got very much more into martial arts, like very defensive, very paranoid and that kind of stuff. And eventually it led me to, um, psychology and so psychotherapy into trying to figure out like what, you know, and, and I had to, I had to kind of get in touch with the anger that I felt, the sadness, whatever that experience had done to me as a, as a young 18 year old, right out of suburbia, you know, having faced a life or kind of a life or death situation so quickly. And, um, and that's when I started really getting interested in what is it that makes us, you know, a so afraid of each other and be aggressive towards each other. And how can we start to um, build better relationships with other people of different, totally, because this person was a complete, a, a different world for me. You know, I'd never met anyone like him. Hmm. And, uh, uh, so how, how do we, how do we start to get to know people or, or build better relationships without having to be violent, um, without creating so much trauma between people? Um, just, just as a very initial question. And that's when I started thinking about 
you know, conflict psychology and peace. And I, I started studying a little bit and then eventually it led me into graduate school and actually studying it from a, you know, from a sort of academic perspective. I think, so I think that's where it started on the deep. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Thanks for the story. Um, yeah. I mean, it, I didn't mean to reduce it to a story, but thank no, you no, for sharing. Like, yeah, yeah, no problem. Yeah, no, it was, it, it was, yeah, it was, a inter- it was, it's a crazy, I can only imagine, I mean, how, how people that are in law enforcement and military that have gone through similar situations that have had yeah. to take people's lives or be in those kinds of situations, like how much, you know, trauma they have had to experience. You yeah. know, I just, I saw one little blip of it, you know? Yeah. Um, so the, the, the more, the, the, the less need for violence and the more need, the the more we can have peaceful means, uh, so much the better for everyone's life satisfaction, well being. You know, absolutely. So you run a business. What's it called? What's your business called? Uh, Pollock Peace Building Systems. Peace Build Systems. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, what what's the title of your dissertation? Does it have one? Are you allowed oh, to say? Uh, I don't. I don't have a title. I don't think I have a title. How many yet. colons does it have? <laughs> probably four colon. <laughs> uh, I don't have a total time. Yeah. Cause I'm still working on the, on the, on the, like sort of the proposal part. And so I'm, I'm about a year, year and a half away from probably finishing. Okay. So, and yeah. do you think that, um, uh, there's more, uh, on top of your business that you're going to end up doing? Do you think you'll be a professor or do you, do you see yourself going in, in that direction? You're very gifted at what you do. I can tell just talking with you. So I just wonder like oh, what you. other, what other, um, yeah, I don't. Containers I don't know. are you I mean, going I, to pour that into? It, it depends. Um, I'm a little bit. Um, I have some trepidation about going into academia at this point, um, unless things sort of change and there's more inclusivity <laughs> in the academia. Uh, so I, I'm not sure about that, but um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I I really want to you know continue to be uh, like a thought leader in this space and mm. just do what I can to promote the idea of getting to know individuals and caring for each other as a priority, you know, cause if we put that as a priority, kindness, generosity, care, um, what, what's more important than that, you know, uh, um, in addition to our basic psychological needs, like things like autonomy and liberty, you know, the, yeah. you, I, I don't know if you've ever, have you read, um, Jonathan Haidt's book, right? The righteous mind. Yes. Yeah. So that's an interesting, so, so moral foundations theory, that's a very interesting, a theory and uh, in, in a very simple way, the way he breaks it down, which is like yeah. basically, I mean, it's more complicated than this, but basically the way that I look at it through human needs theory is what is your most sensitive, uh, uh, where's your threat perception uh, sensitivity on particular types of needs? And it seems like if you're on one side that your threat perception around care and equality is very high and anything that sort of triggers that sensitivity or triggers the threat perception of everyone's not being cared for in an equal and fair way. That's really important. And then if, and then on another side, it's, it's uh, the, the sense of autonomy or liberty. And if that's being triggered um, and I'm, and I'm willing, and it's like, well, it seems like each side is willing to give up a little bit of one to gain the other, where I'm willing to give up a little bit of, of the idea of fairness in order to make sure that we are all free to choose what we want, all of agency. That's one side. And the other side is I'm willing to give up a little bit of my liberty and my agency to, to regulation and et cetera, if we're all being fair and equal. And I, and I, that's an interesting way of looking at it. And I, and I think that there's some truth to it, you know? Yeah. Um, I think, I think what you're adding to it is, uh, 
is the is dialogue based on controlling or regulating that fear uh, or That's all that negative emotion. Right. Yeah, absolutely right. So if you if you're going to do a dialogue, if I was going to do a dialogue or like what we might call a transformative mediation, which is not like a anything other than like a financial legal, like a relational mediation, helping people get along better. I want to address what are you afraid of? And if but if one side says, I'm really afraid that uh, of people not being treated fairly and not being cared for and respected on a deep level. Right. That's what I'm afraid of. And the other side says, well, I'm really afraid of my autonomy and agency, my liberty being jeopardized. Right. And I'm willing to give up a little bit of that. You know, so we go, OK, now we know what each other is afraid of and we can directly address that. So and I can ask the other party, do you want do you intend to limit their freedom? Do you want to limit their freedom? Do you intend you want to limit fairness? And they say, well, I don't want to limit it, but I'm, I'm willing to I'm willing to have it limited if, if my thing is OK. So let's consider what everyone's afraid of here so that we can find some common ground to start from so we can build solutions that actually make sense for everybody not just one side you know so we have to be clear on what each other are afraid of if we're yeah. going to build something that would work for everybody you know yeah otherwise it's always like this power grab it's like well who's going to be yeah. more in power so that our agenda is more important our fears are being you know um addressed and regardless of what you're, you're afraid of because yeah. our fears are more important than your fears and that kind of thing. yeah right yeah. um I'm, I'm watching myself um being more exposed to uh, people who adhere to ways of thinking that I've been cri very critical of for several years because I've been exposed to a very awful implementation of these ideas. And in exposing myself, listening to these people talk through their ideas and listening to these ideas being debated, what I'm having to do is very consciously you know, like, look at my reaction, look at that fear, because like, I was, I was used, those ideas were used to attack me. Um, yeah. So now I'm like, okay, well, just because they start saying these words doesn't mean that it's going to escalate. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're totally wrong. There, there's probably something here that I'm not seeing, or else they wouldn't be adhering to this. There's something that, that does drive this set of beliefs, that is very likely very valid, that I haven't been attending to. Uh, so, but first I have to like overcome my, uh, that whole thing. And so yeah. it, it's only, but it's only through exposure, uh, that I'm able to, uh, practice that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, it, that's that intergroup contact, that exposure to it. And, and it sounds like you're, you know, you're almost practicing a level of self-awareness where it, where it's like, just because I'm perceiving something to be a threat, or just because they're perceiving something to be a threat, it doesn't mean that we. I need to internalize that in some way. Yeah. Believe there. This is this is something. There's there's this sort of saying that's like you know facts don't care about your feelings or feelings don't care about your facts and that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Um, and there, I think they're both true. I think that you know on one hand, you know, facts. Um, Certain facts are facts, although facts can be interpreted in all kinds of ways, right? We've seen that. It was like, I have the same set of facts here, and this and this person over here goes, but it doesn't mean what you think it means because of X, Y, Z. And the other person goes, no, it doesn't mean what this because of X, Y, Z. So facts can be interpreted in way, different ways. But when we're talking about feelings, and going back even to Jonathan Haidt's you know, sort of premise about the, the elephant and the rider, intuition driving uh, decision-making and behavior and the rider, like the, the sort of higher cognition, just sort of directing that intuition in some way, or even like deeper emotions. Um, it's, it's obvious that feelings really don't care about facts a lot of times. 
And that's not to say that the facts aren't important, but what's important is how do we deal with feelings first to yeah. start to start to start getting the intuition or the sh or the elephant to start moving in a different direction a little bit, skewing in a different direction, so that the rider's even available, the higher commission's even open to hearing information that might that might otherwise it's just pure confirmation bias. I'm not yes. gonna I'm gonna discount anything you say if it affects my deeper beliefs, my deeper intuitions. I'm just gonna discount it. It's just not gonna matter to me. You know? Yeah. I think that um what you're pointing to is kind of a gap in that formulation. It's that w the world isn't just created of facts and feelings. The world isn't just created, human beings aren't just created of feelings and, and rationality. There's also a governing thing above the both, but you have to actually practice awareness and consciousness in order to attend to, to the rationality and to the feelings and then make something holistic between them. So there's this, you yeah. know, the, the eye of the uh, pyramid that I think a lot of spirituality and most likely martial arts actually gives you access to a lot of different practices gives, gives us access to. If, if you, 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 you bring me to, uh, you bring us to a great, great point, because um, if you look at, uh, met, if you look at metaphysical or mystic traditions, Eastern philosophies, uh, a very common theme is the idea that we are, and this is like shown in the movie The Matrix, right? We're all living in this sort of illusion, and it's true. I mean, any brain scientist will tell you uh, your mind is creating an illusion. It's only being able to process a certain amount of information based on the millions of bits of information that are available. So we're in, we're all in this sort of illusion, and if we can if we can practice metacognition or like self awareness, like we call might call in Buddhism like the witness and the ego thinking. I'm a witness to my own ego. I'm a witness to my own beliefs. I can look at it from like sort of a bird's eye view um, and recognize that mo I'm, I'm living in an illusion and so are we all in some level. So the question is, is, you know, um, how do I change the illusion into some way that feels really good for me? And also, in a, like, how do we sort of combine our, you know, we're all combining illusions and it's easier when we're in the same group to combine illusions. And, but, uh, uh, cause we can this share. This is getting them. very postmodern, but I agree with you. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's, but it was like. Consensus reality kind of. of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But so, it's true. Uh, it's true. Yeah. You can't yeah. ignore it without consequences down the line. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I'm not, I mean, I, and I don't want to promote the, cause I'm, I'm a scientist and I, and I believe in the scientific method and I don't want to say that, you know, I, I'm not a postmodernist in the sense, like there's no, you know, sort of objective reality necessarily. Yes. Uh, maybe if we want to look at it metaphysically, we can argue that, but, um, but there are ways of knowing what is true on some level, the way we interpret the facts can be, you know, uh, different, but facts are facts and the way we interpret them can be, can be altered. But yeah, no, I think, I think, uh, I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I've been thinking about this too. It's like when I start to feel triggered, like if I watch the news or if I'm like talking to someone, I just start to feel like, man, I do not, this is feeling really uncomfortable for me. One thing that's helped me is to recognize, wait a minute, I, I'm, I'm a little bit in my illusion right now, right? I'm, I'm living in the illusion and, and in my illusion, uh, I am perceiving that this person is threatening me and I'm, I'm having yeah. all these thoughts about what it means to me and what it means to my future. And, and I'm, and then maybe I'm threatening and it's like, all that stuff is just potentially a story. It's not necessarily true. It could be true. Well, yeah, when when you are running on those lower emotions, you actually just become a rat in a maze. Like you you actually are your the field of 
potentiality is limited to that of a of a of an animal of a reptile you're yeah. actually limiting your ability the choices that you can make and, and how you yeah. can process everything and then you're also scurrying and so your reward is only some some bit of cheese right like so like you, yeah. you go down to a lower level of of operation yeah there, the the limbic system the lower level the reptilian brain the emotional brain they're going to be super important if uh, to, to yeah. address if we want to get along, but we need to address them with a higher cognition. Like that's yeah. what makes us human is being able to take rationale and reason and hopefully not just be directed by our intuition, yeah. but also help direct the intuition on yeah. some level. And that's tough. It's tough. You know, it's not easy because that's not the way our brains have like evolved really, but it's, it's, I think it's possible. Also, so, Jeremy, you you have your your business and i think you have a book do you have any like lecture series or i i see a lot of interviews you've done a lot of interviews but do you have uh, a place where people can go and and suck more information out of your beautiful mind uh well thank you uh uh well we have a youtube channel and we're just starting to do okay. these sort of like you know weekly resources of like i just okay. give these two minute two minute talks on principles of building peace in your life that I think are really important. So we just start, we just kind of launched that. So they're going to be coming out every week, little weekly tips about building more peace in your life. So that's one thing you, you just search for my uh, Pollock peace building on YouTube. I'll link that. Yeah. But also, yeah, my, my book's called the conflict resolution playbook. Uh, it's an Amazon. So get Great. that as well, but yeah, hopefully, hopefully more stuff, hopefully more, more ways of interacting in the future. I have a feeling about you. It was a very chance encounter, but now that we've spoken, I have a feeling about you. You, you might be height part two, or, or height related. Yeah, well, that, that's a, that would be a compliment for sure. <laughs> yeah, appreciate um, it. So uh, I'll wrap up the call, and we can do a little bit of uh, post uh, call chat. So thank you for joining, yeah. the Voice of Reason. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really, really appreciated and enjoyed it. Cool. I'll end the recording. Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.